Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Thanks of democracy. Very good. <laughs> Hi there, Mark Kenny here with Democracy Sausage Extra, which comes to you from the one and only Australian National University. I'm going to be talking this episode with the still relatively new Victorian Greens Senator Lydia Thorpe, a Gunai Gunditjmara Japarung woman, and we're going to be discussing her state's new truth-telling commission and some of the issues around that. Senator Lydia Thorpe, welcome to Democracy Sausage. Thanks for having me. I love a good uh, democracy sausage. Well, that's good to hear. It is rather early as we're recording this, so apologies for any croaks in the voice or uh, slowness of thinking. Your state, Victoria, is pushing ahead with its reconciliation agenda and recently announced its proposed truth-telling forum, which will be administered by the, and you might have to help me with the pronunciation here, but the Uruk Commission, is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's right. Now, we'll come back to this first uh, in, in a moment, but I'd, I'd like to start sort of even before that with the Uluru Statement uh, from 2017, the Statement from the Heart, uh, which called for voice, treaty and truth. Um, of course, a voice to parliament enshrined in the constitution was one of the key things. In fact, it's probably the, the sort of headline initiative that most Australians would uh, would say they know from that uh, Uluru Statement. Um also involved is a Makarada Commission, which would coordinate a series of agreements or treaties and which would also run a truth-telling process. Now, so before we go to the Victorian thing, I'd just like to get your um, interpretation of the Uluru Statement because my understanding is that you have a different perspective in terms of the order that these things ought to occur. You would like to see the treaty-making part of it done first. Is that correct? Uh, well, in fact, truth-telling first, so uh, oh, we need to first. go through a, a truth-telling process in this country of actually understanding uh, all of our histories uh, going back over 200 years rather than 
you know, um, the establishment of parliament in, in 1901, uh, then treaty, uh, and then a negotiation about how we go into the colonial document of the Australian constitution. Right. So as we speak here on Wednesday morning, um, there was a vote last night in the Senate, uh, which I think Senator Pat Dodson sponsored, where he was seeking to have an inquiry into uh, the, the Makarata aspect of the Uluru Statement, and that did not get up. That's that's right. And look, I'm not surprised. I didn't think it was uh, going to get up. Uh, this country doesn't understand what is involved in a treaty. I think that there's a lot of fear around uh, the word treaty and what that means. I think that a lot of Australians are fearful of losing something uh, because of their lack of understanding and they're not seeing it as something that will unite us as a nation uh, and and bring us together in a way uh, we've never been before. I mean, a, a war was declared on our people over 200 years ago, and that war has not ended. And we only need to look at the statistics uh, around the country with this country's first people, and that demonstrates how the war continues. And, and we want an end to that war, and we need a peace treaty in this country. Uh, and in terms of that motion, um, yeah, look, the, the terms of reference of the motion are brilliant. Uh, I just think that the, the parliament's not ready for treaty just, just yet and that we need to take them on a bit of a journey. But that motion was really calling for an inquiry, wasn't it? That's right. I mean, it That's seems right. to me to be uh, a, a, reason, a reasonable thing to do. Absolutely, and I wholeheartedly supported uh, that motion and I think that it it would simplify. So it had the numbers with Labor and the Greens. That's right. But few others? Uh, Obviously not the government, not the coalition. That's right. And and One Nation, of course, um, which is surprising, I think, if they understood what it actually meant, they'd jump on board. But I think that um, the stereotype of, of what we want from elements in that place uh, make it difficult for us to get anything across the line. Right. So can I go back just for a moment to the Uluru Statement and where is your difference with the uh, the way the Uluru Statement was eventually agreed? Um, because am I right in saying that you were there but you walked away from the process, you and some others? That's, that's correct. Uh, it was an invitation-only uh, event at, at Uluru. Um, corporations, Aboriginal corporations and Aboriginal organisations had first preference uh, and invitation to attend. So that meant that grassroots Aboriginal people across the country uh, were excluded from the process. So the numbers were uh, sewn up a long time before that meeting and the whole aim of that meeting was constitutional recognition, which is not what we want as Aboriginal people in this country. We don't believe that going into the colonial document uh, that has oppressed us for over 200 years is the first step. We need to uh, rectify what's gone on in this country through a treaty uh, and then we need to negotiate a, you know, how we go into that constitution. But I did not support what happened and, and I, I walked out because we couldn't, um, we, we weren't free to talk about uh, our position, which was treaty, and uh, we were denied 
um, you know, a voice in, in many of those workshops. And, and we told the organisers, Noel Pearson and, and co, that we will have to walk out if we don't, if we're not heard. And, and so we did. Uh, and at that same time, we were threatened with tribal punishment for doing that. So we had to camp out in the desert as a result of standing up for what we believed was right and what our people had told us to say at that meeting. Now, this is this the position of the Greens or is this your sort of personal position? Uh, it's the position of the Greens and it's my personal position and it's a position of the Black Greens across the country uh, and we are connected into our communities. So uh, it's it's coming from grassroots voices. I hope this isn't an insensitive comparison, but I I was around covering politics during the CPRS, the Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme, and 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 the, the fact that it failed. And one of the key reasons it failed is because the Greens would not get on board with it. And here we are, a dozen years later, virtually still with no proper emissions reduction policy. A very key core sort of value for the Greens, mm. uh, really the, the area of policy that the Greens Party was established around. Um, and, of course, the criticism was that they had made the good the enemy of the perfect, or perfect the enemy of the good, I think the saying is. Um, is there a danger that that could happen here too, given where we started this conversation and you're acknowledging that uh, there there is a level of fear in the broader Australian community about treaty? Is disagreement amongst those people advocating the reconciliation process sort of a gift to political opponents who would like to see nothing happen? Um, look, I think, you know, just in terms of the CPRS, uh, it wasn't supported because it also included fossil fuels. So it's a bit like constitutional recognition. Um, you know, the conversation about putting um, Aboriginal people into this Australian constitution means that we are completely assimilated. We've maintained our sovereignty. We've not ceded our sovereignty. And by going into the Australian constitu constitution uh, would be seen as ceding our sovereignty. So I think they're, um, they're very important issues that uh, are based around integrity uh, and and values and, you know, it has to be – we're not going to settle for, for crumbs on the table. We've, we're sick of settling for that. Uh, I think that we have to take this, this country on a journey and I think truth-telling will help people in this country to understand how divided we really are as a nation. Uh, and I think all sides of government will um, benefit from understanding the truth. So, yes, there are people that don't want this to happen, but, you know, when you sit down and have a conversation about truth, uh, they're, they're more likely to come along. What sort of uh, truth-telling models do you have in mind? I mean, the most famous one internationally is probably the South African model of, of truth-telling in the post-apartheid era. Do you take lessons from international examples like that? Absolutely. I think Australia's got an opportunity to, you know, have a 21st century model um, where we learn from those um, who've, who've had these ki kinds of inquiries and commissions around the world. Uh, I think that, you know, when you ask a, a, an ordinary, you know, white Australian what uh, 
the culture of this country is or what the identity of this country is, they really struggle to tell you what it is. So I think this will enrich uh, and um, mature our nation in a way that, um, you know, we need to we need to have an identity. We have the oldest continuing living culture in the world right here and we should be proud of that. But uh, it's not just about a welcome to country and it's not just about watching, a, you know, um, dancers do a ceremony. It's about owning what happened uh, and that it was the, you know, a war declared here and it was the first war on these shores that no one wants to acknowledge. They don't acknowledge the frontier wars and they don't acknowledge the genocide that happened in our own country. So I think truth-telling is going to be quite difficult for people, but at the same time it's like, you know, when you go and see a counsellor and you've got a mental health uh, concern and you have to go through some of the pain of the history and you need to acknowledge that to be able to heal and move forward. Well, I think that's what this country needs to do. Yes, I think it's well said. So where is the coalition up to with um, this this area of policy? We know, uh, you know, as you say, it's been a, a history on both sides of politics of of denial or underperformance and and um, and of dragging the feet. Uh, we got the Uluru statement, notwithstanding your concerns about it. Uh, we had a very swift uh, dismissal of that um, constitutional enshrinement question by Malcolm Turnbull, the then Prime Minister. Um, we now have an Indigenous man in Ken Wyatt as the Indigenous Minister. He seems very committed to drawing, driving this process forward. The coalition's position now is that it would legislate the voice rather than have it in the constitution, which would need to be done through referendum, and then do the constitutional bit later. Notwithstanding your concerns about the validity of all of that, can you just give us a sense of, as a legislator, where you understand the government to be at the moment? Because Pat Dodson and others have you know, raised the point that it seems to have stalled or at least be going slow. I think that we all have more in common than we realise. Uh, and one of the things that uh, I've made a priority in my um, in my entry into parliament is to bring back the Black Caucus and bring all the Aboriginal uh, MPs and senators together to have a conversation. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, well, um, I was going to ask you about that actually because I'm interested in the extent to which there is that uh, comedy, that... Um conversation going on. Uh, we've seen, you know, reasonably uh, obvious associations between some uh, of the Aboriginal members, but um, yes, I'm interested in the extent to which you are all talking. Yeah, look, I, I'm, um, I'm, I'm friends with everybody uh, and I'm really looking forward to bringing everybody together. It's been um, my call. Uh, because we need to be connected. We're all blackfellas at the end of the day, even though we might not agree on our politics. Uh, but I think uh, with with what Ken's doing around the voice, and that's not that's separate to the Uluru statement, of course. The voice is around building the capacity from the grassroots up and and setting up structures uh, where Aboriginal people have a voice. Uh, I I think that that's something that that we do need. I mean, it, it sounds a lot like the old ATSIC model, maybe a new in, new and improved model of the ATSIC um, days 
where we did have grassroots democracy and we, you know, that fed through to the federal level or the the Australian level. So the, the key difference being that the voice would not be spending money, presumably, in the way that ATSIC was? From my understanding, the voice would be spending money around setting up those structures and um, investing in grassroots levels to... But it won't be running programs, is no, really what I mean? No, no, it'll just be... From my understanding, it'll just be about building the capacity, which is something that I 100% support. I haven't seen the devil in the detail yet, and I'm still looking through that. But I think once we get in the room together, we will agree on a way forward. Uh, It's just that the politics has got in the way and it's stalling the process. What I don't want to see is a referendum to put us into the constitution because what you will get is black activists around this country marching with the likes of Pauline Hanson saying no to a referendum. And we don't need a referendum in this country right now to decide on on our fate. Uh, I think it's a waste of taxpayers' money, it's a wasted exercise, and it's something that I will not support and that I will also campaign against if it's about putting us into uh, the colonial document of the Australian Constitution. Can I just stay with that for a moment? Because you say you support the voice because of what it represents and what it can do in terms of articulating Indigenous Australia's views on policies, particularly policies that have impacts uh, on Indigenous Australians. Isn't the enshrinement in in the Constitution merely the status that is given to that voice? It's not about putting Indigenous Australians into the Constitution. It's about putting the process into the constitution so it is beyond the reach or the or the removability of of a given parliament whereas if it's legislated as we know as happened to atsic and as has happened to a number of key bills in recent times i mean think about the carbon tax or we think about work choices we can name any number of mm. things that governments have come along and rolled off rolled back off um, from uh, previous governments so isn't that really what it's about? It's a gesture of permanence in terms of the mechanism for representation. No, it's about assimilation of our people and it's about taking our sovereign status away and that's the way we are looking at it. Why We've is that made, not the case with legislation then? Uh, because it's not, um, it's, it's not in the Australian constitution. It's not in the so-called law book of this country which uh, is, you know, has been put on us uh, over the oldest law on the land in the well, oldest law uh, on the globe. So, constitutional recognition to to myself and many other Black activists and and grassroots Aboriginal people across the country is about assimilation. It's about uh, calling us Indigenous Australians, which we do not accept. Uh, legislation is fine. You can, you know, we might accept it um, and move on from that. But you know, after we have to really look at this. This is about an advisory body. We're sick of advisory bodies. We need real power, and a treaty in this country will ensure real power. And I'm talking not uh, a voice to Parliament. This is about a voice in Parliament and seats in Parliament through a treaty. All right. Well, look, we'll take a break there. Just before we do, though, can I just draw out one comment? You said we don't accept being called Indigenous Australians. Can can you guide me on that in terms of what we should be saying? 
Well, what is Australia? <laughs> it's a good uh, question. You know, and I'm a I'm a Gunai Gunichamar and Japarung woman, and uh, my people have been on this in this place for thousands and thousands of generations. And when when was Australia? Um, you know, when did that come about? It's only been just over two hundred years. So, so first Australians. Why should we be? Why should we be anything? Uh, other than who we've maintained to be for thousands of generations, and that is Gunai, Gunichamara, Japarung. Why can't we identify like we have for thousands of generations? Why do we have to assimilate and call ourselves Australians? Okay, we'll take a quick break there and be back in a moment. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Uh, Now, Lydia Thorpe, we, we started off talking about or at least I did, talking about Victoria. So let me now draw us back to your home state of Victoria. Can you tell us where things are up to there? This, there's now a truth-telling commission. There's been a, um, a, a body advising parliament, a bit like what's being talked about nationally, but Victoria has forged ahead with this. Uh, you support this truth-telling process, this Uruk Commission, Yes, I do, 100%. It's uh, something that our old people have been calling for for decades. Uh, so it's good to see that the Andrews government has got behind it and and is embarking on a truth-telling process. Uh, let's hope that um, it's, it's truth and nothing but the truth and it's not um, part of some bu- bureaucracy or program or uh, government agenda. Uh, so I think that Victorians going on this journey will uh, be a, a really good um, lead way into what the rest of the nation needs to do as well. I mean, truth-telling in Victoria uh, needs to include the dispossession of our lands and our water. Um, it needs to include uh, you know, rounding us up on missions back in the day and and not allowing us to practice our culture or speak our language. It's got to also include um, the current day uh, injustices such as incarceration rates, uh, the fact that, you know, where Victoria still locks children up from the age of 10 years of age uh, and the fact that Aboriginal women are being in prison more than anybody else in the state. So truth-telling has to uh, go back uh, the last 200 years to this present day. And they've got a fir- th- this follows the establishment of the First People's Assembly, as I said. How has that worked in your view? For those of us outside of Victoria, for example, can, can you just explain its status? Uh, look, it's, it's, it's not been great. <laughs> 
uh, to say the least, with uh, only 7% of Aboriginal Victorians participating in the process. Uh, we only have 11 nations out of 38 represented on the Treaty Assembly, so it is not representative of the state. There are many nations that have been excluded because they are not, inverted commas, recognised by the government through their processes. So they've only allowed 11 of the uh, government-approved nations to participate on that assembly. So that, you know, there's a real problem with that. And uh, I do still have hope that uh, the assembly opens the doors for the remainder of uh, those 38 nations and have a truly, um, you know, representative voice for all of Victoria and all of the nations. We have 38 nations. We have 38 language groups. We have just over 100 clans that belong to all of those nations. Once upon a time, we had over 300 clans. That means that 200 have been wiped off the face of the earth and and that must be part of the truth-telling and we must ensure that all of those voices are heard. What's the government's argument, the Victorian government's argument for limiting that number? Is it that there is disagreement amongst uh, First Peoples uh, about the status of the individual status or are there territorial disputes over over areas as has been, as is the case here where we sit in Canberra? Uh, no, it's just the fact that uh, the remainder of those nations haven't gone through the government process of becoming a registered Aboriginal party through the cultural heritage legislation. Right. And there are a number of nations who don't want to go down that path and that they, they are a nation in their own right. They have their own culture, language, country. Uh, it's just that they haven't been recognised through the government process. And, and might I add, uh, to become a registered Aboriginal party through the cultural heritage legislation, you have to be appointed by the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs. So there is too much government interference uh, and for this truly to be a genuine process, we have to self-determine our own uh, representative structure uh, and not have the government tell us how to do it. And is it broadly, let's assume for a moment that it's working better than it is, uh, let's assume that it's working in some way uh, closer to at least you know the, the, the way it was intended or the way it was advertised, is it committed in the same way as we hear the Commonwealth one would be to, um, uh, that is the Commonwealth voice, uh, is it looking at legislation, does it have any deliberative power? Look, I, I'm not sure of that detail. Uh, I would hope so, uh, but also, you know, it depends on whether they open the doors for the remainder of the nations right. because if you're So it's appointed, a legitimacy question first absolutely. and foremost. Yeah. If you're appointed by the minister, then there's only so much you can do. You're funded by the government, uh, you're working with the government and, you know, if you're going to question legislation or decisions of the government, then I, I'm sure that would make it very difficult for those that are being funded by them. So I think to have integrity in the process, we just need to open it up. Uh, and, you know, same if we do it at the federal level. It's, it's, we can't exclude people uh, because that's where it, it brings itself undone. And, 
and it will take time to bring everyone together but you know we're we're patient people we've we've been going for 200 years under this oppressive regime and uh we're not going anywhere so we need to do things right and uh, we need to ensure that everyone comes along on that journey. There is a lot of support in the broader community for reconciliation in whatever form it takes. How conscious are you of that and are your uh, community members, I guess? It's a, it's a difficult thing to quantify, no doubt, but uh, it is, there is, I think, significant goodwill across the community broader, I, I would suggest, than has been represented in Parliament. Absolutely. Um, our allyship is growing, um, you know, in the tens of thousands now. You only need to see the Black Lives Matter rallies, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people uh, and, and people from all sides of um, the political spectrum are starting to wake up and uh, support our calls for uh, truth and justice. Not sure about reconciliation because with reconciliation, it's um, usually you know bringing together two parties who've done wrong by one another, and we haven't done anything wrong. But you know we'll be happy to reconcile and use the word if we have to. Uh, but yeah, look, the movement's growing, and I think it's growing to the point where the government can't ignore us anymore. And do you think the Victorian progress, and I understand that Northern Territory is on the cusp of, of doing something similar in, in these, these regards, is this going to increase the, the, the pressure? Is it going to put a bit of extra pep in, the, in, in Ken Wyatt's uh, push for, for progress here or, or, or not? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, there's, a, there's treaty conversations going in, in the NT and, and Queensland as well. Uh, in fact, the Labor governments are all talking about treaty. Uh, it will put pressure on all um, governments, all levels of government, uh, and it's just growing in momentum. Uh, the difference with the NT treaty conversations at the moment is they're going to the grassroots first and foremost, which is not what the Victorian treaty process did. Uh, but we also have to remember that these Labor governments who are talking about treaty uh, are also extinguishing native title, they're fracking country, they're logging country, uh, they're doing all kinds of destruction to country while uh, they want to make friends and sit at a treaty table. Cutting down us. sacred trees. <laughs> uh, yes, that's <laughs> right. So there's got to be a little uh, bit of good faith along the way if you if you really want us to sit at the table with you, then you you have to you have to stop some of these um, injustices to our people and our land and our water. I think there'd be a lot of uh, people listening to this podcast, and as I say, across the broader community, who are looking to do what they can. People of um, non-indigenous or non-first peoples uh, heritage. Um, and but they but they find themselves constantly unsure of how to express themselves, uh, how to how to do so in a respectful way. Uh, do you acknowledge that is a is, yes. is a problem? And it's not just uh, you know for for non Aboriginal people; it's for Aboriginal people too. People are confused. We have the uh, Uluru statement. We have now Ken Ken White's voice and. 
and then you have me, you know, pushing treaty. So there are a lot of people that are confused about which way to go and that's where I think that um, the motion last night would have simplified yes. uh, and really um, clarified what each of those movements mean for people out there. And it's unfortunate and, you know, I spoke to Ken yesterday uh, and, and articulated that and he agreed, he actually agreed that it would simplify the message out there. But because it is labelled Macarada or, or treaty, um, we know that the Liberal government aren't ready for that. So I think that we need to negotiate how we can simplify these messages for, for everyone out there. And, and people, you know, non-Aboriginal people and Aboriginal people can self-determine what they believe is best for this country. Because that's what this is about ultimately, isn't it? If you could boil it down to one word, it would probably be self-determination. Exactly, and it's, it's our human right uh, to self-determine our own destiny. I think um, the, I, for me, treaty is the best way forward because it allows conversations to happen. And if we rewind 20 years ago uh, under Howard, we had the reconciliation process. I was a, I was a part of that. My mum sat on the Reconciliation Council with Patrick Dodson and Linda Burney and others. And the priority back then was treaty. Now, that's been uh, hijacked along the way. Bob Hawke talked about treaty, didn't Bob he? Bob Hawke yeah. talked about treaty. Um, you know, how we've been talking about treaty for, for a long time and a lot of Labor leaders have talked about it. I don't know why it's been lost along the way. I think the Conservatives jumped on board and said, let's, let's just put them in the Constitution and be done with it. Uh, but I think going back to that reconciliation process, that was the most comprehensive consultation this country's ever seen with the, with First People. Uh, there were town hall conversations with councils, uh, with Aboriginal people. We need to go back to that basic conversational level at the grassroots about what does treaty look like? What does constitutional recogni recognition look like? What does this voice look like? so that people can be informed. And that's another human right that we have or that we're meant to have, and that is free, prior and informed consent. That's all we're asking. Absolutely. And do you draw any lessons from New Zealand's Treaty of Waitangi? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, one of the lessons that I've learned and what I tell my people in this country is that if you don't want a treaty, that's okay. You have the right to not participate and that's what happened uh, in the Waitangi Treaty. There's a, a number of clans that did not participate and still aren't part of that treaty, which is their self-determining right. Uh, but we also look at the, you know, the positives of that treaty process and you walk, you know, you fly into New Zealand and it looks like, uh, you know, it, it's it's not colonised and white. It's You see the beautiful culture of that country and the language of that country. It's taught in schools. It's respected. The land is respected. Uh, so that's, you know, we could be so much better as a nation if we just embrace the first people of these lands. We want to share with the rest of this country the stories of the, of the land and of the water of our song lines, which everybody has a home on, everybody has a workplace on, and if they only took a moment to understand the stories of that so that they could share with their children and their families, uh, everyone would be enriched from that process. Indeed. Um, 
only a couple of days ago before St. Patrick's Day today as we record this, so the 17th, on the 15th it was the two-year anniversary of that appalling Christchurch massacre. In the days after that, in the hours after that appalling massacre, um, you may have seen it, many people will have seen the vision of the school kids who gathered at the uh, the site. There were many flowers there and there were kids of all different backgrounds who performed the haka together. It was one of the more emotional things. I, I get emotional even now thinking about it. Um, but I was struck at that moment that that said something about the progress of uh, harmony in New Zealand that doesn't exist now. It is unimaginable to think of white Australian kids, for example, uh, performing uh, a First Nations ceremony or ceremonial dance as a gesture of solidarity. Is that something we could strive towards in the future? It's actually I mean, it's a complicated issue, isn't it? It's actually something that happens already uh, at a very local level. Uh, there are there are many schools involved in um, cultural programs. There are uh, events on weekends uh, where non-Aboriginal people and families are invited to to um, you know celebrate and be part of what what we're doing. Uh, you know, when, when the refugees were, um, let out of the, the Mantra Hotel and those hotels in Melbourne, we held a ceremony and that was embraced by those, those followers that were released. And it was just a beautiful moment to bring traditional owners of country, uh, together with those, those followers that had been tortured in these, you know, in this country for so long. And, um, invite them to heal on country and and embrace what we have to offer them uh, is a, is a beautiful healing moment. And I think if if more Australians uh, embrace that, and I look, school children, their parents need to listen to them about what they're learning and what they're being a part of, uh, because they are embracing it. They are learning the truth to to some extent. Uh, and they know right from wrong. So, you know, I, I've been in, um, involved in, in having welcome baby to, to country ceremonies where we invite non-Aboriginal families to bring their children and be welcomed and, and hear the stories of that local country, uh, and, and be embraced by the, by local elders and be welcomed. But these are the rules of living on country. You can't destroy it. You got to love it. You got to love the animals and the, and everything else that belongs to the land. These kids, they get it at four, five, six years of age, and they walk away feeling empowered and feeling part of the land that they live on. Imagine everyone did that; they'd have much more uh, respect for where they live and what they do on country. Ain't that the truth? Well, given that that's a very hopeful note, in the sense that those people will be in charge in generations and years to come. Uh, that is a hopeful note to end on. Lydia Thorpe, thanks for coming in and talking to us on Democracy Sausage. It's been a real honour for me and a great pleasure. So thank My you. My pleasure. Thank you. And we'll be back with another Democracy Sausage in a few days' time. Bye for now. <laughs>